Romans 1, beginning again in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God, now you're excited already, aren't you? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew God they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened professing to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things and father we just ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, as we open the word of God this morning, we want to continue now to worship in spirit and in truth and trust that the truth of your word that you said would set us free would speak to us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit that inspired it. So Lord, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. We ask that you would prepare us, that we could honor you as God by submitting our hearts to your word and your will. Please speak to each and every one of us individually and personally in a way that only you can bless your word, Lord. And we ask these things in agreement in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, I think it's fair to say that no one likes rejection. Rejection is hurtful. It leaves you typically feeling kind of ashamed and embarrassed somewhat. And quite honestly, it can even cause legitimate anger. And perhaps you know the experience in your own life, maybe once, maybe recently. Maybe it's happened repeatedly. Maybe you genuinely know the experience of sincerely making the best possible effort to reach out to someone and yet in response to that only to get strongly refused or severely rejected. And if that's the case, I want you to know this morning, trust me, God understands. Because the truth of the matter is there is no greater rejection that has ever transpired than humanity's rejection of God. Humanity's continuous rejection of God. It's something that every breathing soul in this room is guilty of, our rejection at one point or even maybe presently of God. And the rejection of God, despite his revelation and reaching out to us, is really exactly what our text is about this morning. Our text this morning is about God's revelation of himself to us clearly where he has reached out to us in the best efforts possible and yet that being met by humanity's deliberate rejection of him. And as a result of that, then the legitimate and justified cause for God's wrath 
against humanity that has rejected him. Now remember our background as we move into this, not only next set of verses, but really this next section of the book of Romans, as we'll see, is that Paul in our prior verses that we looked at last time, particularly verse 16 and 17, sort of gave, we could almost call it, as we said, the thesis statement for the letter of Romans, where he there declared in those two verses, in essence, that the message of the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And he said, for in that message of the gospel, he said, the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, in summary, in essence, teaching us the good news, the gospel message, that though we have all sinned, we all fail, we all make mistakes, and that justly offends a holy God. Our creator, the one who gave us life and breathed his life into our very lungs to give us existence and, and the one whom we are accountable to, our sins in thought and word and deed, they offend a holy God. And as a just judge, we, we honestly, sincerely all deserve punishment because of the wrong and offensive things we do in our lives. But yet God in his incredible love didn't cast us aside, doesn't reject us despite our rejection. Instead, he lovingly demonstrated the depths of his love by providing a way for us to be forgiven of our sin, to have the hope of eternal life by sending his own son to live the sinless life that we fail to live and cannot, and then dying sacrificially and substitutionally in our place. And he takes our punishment so that he might give to us forgiveness and freedom from the guilt and the punishment of our own sin. And as a result of placing our faith then in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins as the Savior, as a result of our faith alone in Jesus and what he's accomplished, the Bible says the power of God's salvation is available to every one of us. We can be made, in a sense, right and acceptable to God. To be able to approach him and have a relationship with him now and not just live a religious lifestyle, but actually have a relationship with God. And more than that, to be right and acceptable with God so that one day we can have access into heaven because he has made us right or righteous in his sight by our faith in his son's finished work. And Paul is now going to give an expanded description of this gospel of salvation in the book of Romans. But what he does is in this next section now of Romans from verse 18 moving forward, in this next section, basically Paul defines God's wrath and God's judgment against sin. And this will carry all the way through until chapter 3, verse 19, where there in chapter 3, verse 19, like the closing arguments of a good prosecuting attorney the Holy Spirit will summarize in his closing statement regarding man's guilt and sinfulness and God's just wrath. In Romans 3.19, he's going to say, so that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may be guilty before God. So that not one person would have any right to open their mouth in argument or dispute, but that everybody would be silenced by the overwhelming evidence, whether you are the most wretched, reprobate creature on this planet or whether you are the most self-righteous, goody-two-shoe who doesn't think you've ever done anything wrong. It says every mouth will be stopped. Everyone will have to recognize they are guilty. They are without excuse. And understand, in these chapters, Paul has a strategy. 
I should better say the Holy Spirit who's speaking through Paul has an indeed a strategy and that strategy is to set the stage for the storyline of the good news of God's salvation to communicate as clearly as possible how that good news is that God can spare guilty people that God's made a way and what we need to accept is in order to get to that part of the story of the good news and to have the good news make sense and to actually appreciate what it means and it be meaningful, he must first adequately explain the extent of the bad news, of the bad and rotten condition that we are all in, that we would come to terms with that, and to indicate, in essence, why everyone needs to be saved, why we need the power of God's salvation. Listen, I'll be the first to it. Nobody enjoys hearing or facing bad news especially when it's in regards to yourself. You know, people say the two hardest words in the human language are I'm sorry. I don't agree with that. I think the two hardest words in the human language are I'm wrong. Because nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear in any way, maybe I could actually possibly be wrong. Maybe I could be the one wrong rather than everybody else being wrong. Nobody likes to hear that. You're not going to win friends and influence people. I don't encourage you if you're trying to start a friendship, I walk up and say, hi, you know, you are wrong, sinful, a reprobate, and a wretch. And you endure and, and, and deserve ultimately the wrath of God against your life. I wouldn't recommend that. People don't enjoy hearing that. But the truth of the matter, biblically, eternally, spiritually, is it's critical it is critical to understand that reality. I'm having a much different experience raising my children than my upbringing. I met Christ right before I turned 18, but my kids have been raised in a Christian home. But I have tried to the best of my endeavors from the earliest age to allow them to confront and realize the reality of their own sinfulness so that they would realize that they need to take the hem of Jesus' garment for themselves. I don't want them to think that, you know, just because they're exposed to Christ, that they've had an experience with Christ. It's one thing as a Christian parent to expose your children to Jesus. It's another thing to help your child experience Jesus. And they have to understand their condition to come to that reality in their own life. So there's an agenda here, a purposeful agenda as the Holy Spirit wants each person to sense that reality of needing a savior so we desire Jesus to save us. Again, if I can illustrate, until you know you have a disease and you're terminal, which means that you're going to die, then you're not going to go seeking a cure from a physician. And until a person spiritually and morally understands the disease of sin exists in their life too and it's cancerous and it will destroy their life and it's making them terminal, they're going to die and they're going to face judgment for that. It's only that when you come to that recognition that then gives you a motivation and a desire to seek the cure from the great physician Jesus Christ which is his shed blood for the sins that you've committed that makes you want and long for that, it causes you to then experience his salvation. So Paul's beginning a process. Is it going to be a lot about making us realize the guilt of our sin before God? Yes, but it is a purposeful, healthy thing. Because as you see the depravity of man for what it really is, boy, you thoroughly then appreciate the salvation of God. You thoroughly appreciate it. You come to realize like the great hymn writer, this is the one thing that I've learned at the end of my Christian life. I am a great sinner. And Jesus is a great Savior. 
Paul is going to try and bring us to this place. And he begins here in verse 18, notice, by just launching right into it. He says, let's just get to the point in the first few words. He says, for the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So he begins by just declaring the reality of God's wrath. God's wrath against mankind for their rejection and their rebellious living. Now, it would be good to ask as we come to this, what really is the wrath of God? Because we see the wrath of man quite a bit. Some of you may be guilty of that recently in your own life. And, and we know our own wrath and our outbursts of wrath on occasion. We need to understand the term that's used here to describe God's wrath and really the biblical revelation of God's wrath is not what we often envision when we think about the wrath of a person. God's wrath, understand, is a justifiable wrath. It is purposeful, it is directed, it is reasonable. It's not an emotional outburst in angry frustration. That's not what the wrath of God is. It's not God being irritated and frustrated by constant mistreatment and ultimately getting so angry and upset that he just erupts and has a volcanic temper tantrum and just lashes out in frustration that's not what the wrath of god is the wrath of god is rather his righteous and proper anger his righteous and proper anger that is aroused because of man's sin because of our rejection of him god's wrath is reasonable it's judicial it's purposeful and the wrath of god also is exercised in a severe but very directed and purposeful way when it is ultimately carried out. Quite honestly, the wrath of God is actually a part of his goodness. It's a part of his goodness in that God hates evil. Listen, there's a justifiable anger. We need to understand even human beings. Go, oh, I feel so guilty. I always get angry. I shouldn't get angry. Listen, the Bible doesn't say don't get angry. The Bible just says be angry, but sin not. We're created in the image of God. The Bible doesn't say God doesn't get angry. The Bible just says God is slow to anger. God gets angry for justifiable reasons, purposeful reasons. If you can watch some of what you are watching in the current media going on in our country and around this world, and you don't get a little bit angry, something's wrong with you. There's a justifiable reason to be angry. Anger doesn't always have to be a negative thing. It can be a very constructive thing. We are created in God's image. And the wrath of God, again, don't misunderstand. It's not God losing his top, volcanic. No, it's justifiable. It's purposeful. It's a reasonable, judicial wrath that is directed and it is purposeful and will one day deal with the ungodly, unrighteous, evil things that happen. In such a way, it's liberating because it also means this, that all the wrong things that happen in your life and in this world, you can rest assured God's going to deal with that. People are not going to get away with everything. And we honestly would not get away with all the things that we did if we don't escape the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. So look at our verse that tells us here what causes God's wrath. He tells us in verse 18 very clearly. He says the wrath of God is revealed or manifested from heaven against, this is what arouses his wrath, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what God's wrath is against or toward, the Bible says, is all ungodliness of men and all unrighteousness of mankind. Two terms there we find. 
ungodliness, when you look at the term in, in the original language, it, it has an A at the beginning of the world. I don't try and pronounce Greek words beyond that, but that A indicates to be without. You see, ungodliness. It's the same idea there. If you broke it apart, un and godliness. With, the idea there is, is to be without God or without any godliness. What the term indicates, in essence, is it refers to a lack of reverence for God. It indicates an absence of respect towards God's presence or God's existence. There's an absence of any respect or regard for God's presence. It leads, of course, then to all sorts of ungodly behavior and ungodly conduct that offends God, where people behave in a way simply as if God doesn't exist. It's ungodliness. They just make their decisions and live their lives ignoring the fact of God's actual observance of everything that they're doing. And they live with just no regard for the reality of what God may think about what they're doing or, or how God may feel about what they're doing. It's ungodliness. It's living a life in such a way where your mentality and manner of living is that God is absent from all your choices and all your concerns. It, there's, there's no, there's, it's just a complete ignorance of the reality that we have a creator and a God that exists. And it's, in essence, you could reduce it to, and we'll see later in the text, it's worship of self. It's worship of self, where we put ourselves in the place that God ought to be in authority and is the fundamental flaw and plague of humanity. The other word he uses here is not ungodliness, but then he also uses the word, also God's wrath is against unrighteousness. Same idea there. Unrighteousness is a lack of respect for what's right toward people. One's on the vertical level, the other's on the horizontal level. And certainly unrighteousness is the natural outflow of ungodliness because if God's existence is disregarded and ignored, then humanity doesn't take into consideration, well, then what is right or acceptable in regards to how we relate to another person? I'm the judge of that. If I feel this way towards you, I'm just going to treat you like that. If this is what I think or what I'm feeling, I'm just going to respond that way because I don't care about you and I don't have to answer it to anybody else. So ungodliness always transpires into unrighteousness, the absence of right conduct toward fellow man. There's no need to maintain any standard of right or wrong because that doesn't exist. Uh, there's no concern of what my behavior and treatment is in regards to other people. It's the absence of right conduct in every form and category. You'll notice at the end of the chapter, ultimately, this is what it results in. Look down in verse 29 in chapter 3. This is what ungodliness and unrighteousness then results in. Verse 29 says, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And that's probably not an exhaustive list. But we need to realize that's what the wrath of God is justifiably against. That's what God's wrath is against, that unrighteousness and ungodliness. Ephesians 5, 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. See, the wrath of God will always result 
in the judgment of God. It's the end result of God's wrath at God's set point and set time. Please hear me this morning. I beg you. God has wrath. God has legitimate anger towards us because of our sin and our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. Can that be escaped and averted? Absolutely. But you must realize that God is justifiably as a good, holy, judicial God and judge angry and has a legitimate, credible wrath and it's a very real thing and it's appropriate and it's something that God will ultimately reconcile at some point. Paul now is going to go a bit deeper here to show us the cause and the root issue of, of really what is happening between God and people in our verses ahead. How mankind, how do we become guilty of the ungodliness? How do we become guilty of the unrighteousness of which we are personally responsible for? Well, look how our verse goes on. The Bible explains it for us. It says the reason is because we suppress, verse 18, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The point here being made very clearly is that God has supplied adequate revelation of himself to all of humanity. That as a creator, he is fully evidenced with clues and fair evidence of the fact that he is God, that he's a creator, that there is the existence of a God. This is what our verses are telling us here. The problem, what it's also showing us, is that people then just reject the testimony of that truth within themselves. This is what the Bible is getting to, to understand, and, and we must understand, it's not that people can't know God. And it's not that people honestly don't know the truth about God. It's that they stifle the very truth that's testifying in their own conscience all throughout the experience of their life. He's going to say here they suppress the truth. It's not that they can't know the truth. It's that the very voice of truth and proof within them is being ignored by them. It's being resisted. And so that they don't want to acknowledge God's existence or his standards. That's what he's saying in verse 18 at the end of it. He says they suppress the truth. That word suppress literally means to hold down. Uh, to, to hold down, to keep something from rising to the surface. Again, if you could put an itch, a picture in your mind this morning. and, and Sorry, if, somewhat morbid. But uh, imagine someone trying to drown someone else. Just go with me for the sake of the illustration here. Okay. Imagine somebody, you're trying to drown somebody in the, and as you're trying to drown somebody else in the water, they're fighting with everything within them to do what? To try and surface above the water to cry out for help. But you're holding them down so that they don't get up above the water and you're doing everything you can to hold them down so they don't cry out for help. And the Bible's saying this is what people do with the testimony of God's truth within themselves is they suppress the truth. And something in our sinful humanity, we're trying to do everything we can in a bizarre way to sabotage our own human soul. And in the depths of our heart, we are trying to rise, the truth is trying to rise up within us to cry out to say, God, save me. 
I need you in my life. And, and we're, we're holding it down. We're pushing it down with everything. We're suppressing that very truth within ourselves. A little more maybe gross and morbid. You know that unpleasant experience when you're about to vomit? You know that one, right? And what do you do? You, and you, that's the idea. You suppress it, right? You're not going to let it up. Hold it down in there. Swallow it back down. But that's what happens with the truth of God testifying to everybody's heart. Listen, I did it for a, a season of time in my life until July 12th, 1992, when I finally surrendered. I suppressed the truth. I know. I look back in hindsight. That's what I was doing. I was suppressing. The truth was there, but I was suppressing it. I was suppressing and holding it down. And what is the truth that we suppress or hold down? It's the truth of the existence of God and his standards and the fact that we are supposed to be accountable to him and living for him. He says they suppress the truth, look at verse 18 again, in unrighteousness. Interesting. Why do they suppress it? They suppress it in unrighteousness. The idea is that we suppress the truth due to our pursuit of unrighteousness. Because if I can suppress the truth and I ignore the truth of God's presence, then I don't have to think about accountability to God. But once a human soul acknowledges and admits the existence of God, then you have to think about accountability to God. Once you acknowledge the truth of his existence, now you are forced to confront the reality of admitting, therefore, I'm accountable to him. And I have to give account with my life, both now and ultimately when I'm going to stand before him one day. So people hold down the truth to refuse the acceptance of the moral and spiritual implications that it would mean. Listen, I tell you this, gang, this is what everybody on our planet is doing in their life. All of human, This is what all of humanity does until they come to meet Jesus Christ. They suppress the truth of God's existence in their life. Perhaps you can relate before you were saved. Like I said, maybe I remember that. What's further true is perhaps this morning. That's the process that you're in. Can I encourage you? Stop swallowing your vomit, man. It needs to get out of your system. Don't suppress the very truth that can have eternal implications for your soul. And more than that, that can have a spiritual transformation in your life that would allow you to experience in liberty the life that God really intends for you. That you might experience all that the loving God that created you has for your life. Well, Paul shows why mankind needs to suppress that truth in our verses here. Why do we have to hold down the truth about God? He says, well, it's because God has powerfully and clearly communicated to us exactly the reality of who he is. He shows here in the Bible two, at least, clear and purposeful ways that God has revealed himself to all of humanity. We might refer to it as, number one, human conscience, and number two, physical creation. Two ways that God's clearly, purposely revealed himself the first one we find there in verse 19 is that God has revealed himself in human conscience. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
what may be known of God, what can be known about God, God himself, the Bible says here, has actually taken responsibility to show it to us, to reveal it to us. He's lovingly and fairly created us and made us in a way whereby we can all know him where we have the capacity to know our creator and he's created us and prepared us in such a way and he takes the initiative to keep trying to reveal himself continuously to all of us. The question is this, well, well where does that happen? How, how does God show himself to us? Well, look at the text there, verse 19. It says that he reveals himself in them, inside of us. This would be what we would often refer to in our language as what we call conscience. In our conscience. Our conscience is basically that gift of God, which is like an internal moral compass inside of each and every one of us. There's that internal moral compass inside us. It's like an internal judge that it evaluates things, it thinks through things, and it then makes judgments of what's right and what's wrong what's true and what's false. And it's there by birth and by design. It's that capacity to make those kind of judgments. It's that very real internal voice that we all hear in the depths of our being. I think another way to consider what the conscience is like from a spiritual perspective, it's like that internal radar tower inside of you that transmits the frequency of the voice of God that allows you to hear God trying to speak to you in your conscience. And and in the conscience of man, the Bible says, is an innate recognition that God exists and that we need God. There's this innate recognition in all of us, that voice of conscience testifying, God does exist and I do need God. It's that innate recognition that, man, there is right and there is wrong. And, and, and there are things that, that should cause me to experience guilt. It's where we experience guilt in our life when we do wrong things. And God's creatively designed us all in such a way whereby this is there within us. And again, it's that gift that God has given to us as a way whereby he can commune with our eternal being and get to our attention in some ways. It's that inner testimony that indicts us of guilt. The Bible speaks of how when conviction or guilt happens, it says how people are cut to the heart. You know, that piercing feeling that you feel in your heart when you know you've done something wrong and you recognize your guilt. It's like, oh man, that's conscience where God communicates to bring guilt into a human soul properly. It's also our conscience that then makes us driven to know and discover God whereby God's communicating with us from birth through the end of our life, showing us our emptiness, and Him is the answer. Acts chapter 17 says this. It says, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they would grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far away from each one of us. You hear what the Bible is saying there? The Bible is telling us that God shows himself by putting people even where they are on the planet and letting them go through the different circumstances and experiences that they do, all as a way of internally trying to work within them and communicate to them continually so that if a man even just blindly reaches out for God and says, God, if you exist, God says, they'll find me. That they would just, even if they just grope blindly that God says, I'll reveal myself. I'll communicate myself to you. So God speaks to us and he's revealed himself in the conscience of every person. 
And if that were not enough, a second way we see God has spoken and revealed himself fairly, we see in verse 20, is God also reveals himself by physical creation and through physical creation. He says, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You know, probably one of the most powerful communication languages that God uses to speak to and reason with human beings and to testify to their conscience is through the language of his created order if we honestly look at it and its complexity and its diversity and the wisdom of what God has made. I mean, when we consider just fairly and we're honest, not just buying into what some secularist wants, but when we're honest and we evaluate creation on this planet, the incredible order, the complexity, the design that exists in systems of nature, in animals, in human beings. I mean, research continues to uh, you know, indicate to us again and again the greater complexity of all that exists in physical creation. I mean, when we step back and realize and see the incredible design, it screams that there has got to be an intelligent designer behind that. That can't happen by accident. When we look at something as, as, as reduced as, the, as what we call the single cell, you can't even use the word simple cell anymore. That's a ludicrous term. It's an oxymoron. The single cell, we find as we research further and further, it has a digital code. Listen, you can't have a digital code unless you have a programmer. That's how computers work, by digital co by codes, and somebody programs those things. So the reality, again, is as we look at, at our created order of what we exist in, the wonder of our own bodies, all these things, look at our text there, verse 20, it says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Again, the invisible God has created things in such a way, he has made them in such a way on this planet as a further way of testifying to us to give clear evidence, to give clues. There has got to be a designer. There's got to be a creator. There's no way this could happen by chance. Or so. He says in our verse, it's clearly seen he said these things are understood by the things which are made again physical creation helps a person to see and understand this automatically nature itself testifies of this reality with adequate revelation in fact creation even gives us he says here sort of further revelation to understand even the attributes of god he says in our verse here even god's invisible attributes and the eternal power of his Godhead. I mean, think about that. When you look at, at the, the power and the awesomeness of things like an ocean or Niagara Falls, I mean, the things that exist and the power of some of those things, and you realize, wow, how powerful must God be then? When you look at the wonder and complexity of those things, it testifies of a very wise God. When you look at the beauty of things, when, when you realize that things on this planet are enjoyable. Listen, think of food. I like to eat. I'm liking it more and more the older I'm getting even. It's causing more of a problem, I'm realizing. So I'm not going to go to a pole pulpit because you'll start seeing what's starting to happen as time's progressing on. 
but I like to eat. Think about it. We need food for existence. God could have just made eating just a bland, just mechanical experience, but no, it tastes good. God made it enjoyable. The things that we see, well, wow, that's beautiful. The smell of a flower, things that are, that are pleasant, that stimulate our senses. What does it testify of a loving God? He said, I don't want you to just exist. I want you to enjoy my creation. I'm a loving God. I'm a caring God. I know you need to eat, but I want you to enjoy when you eat as well. And it testifies of the attribute of God's love and kindness and compassion. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, God has set a tabernacle for the sun. Again, showing that creation, it says, it's, it's a language in which God speaks to humanity. It's one of the ways he communicates of his existence. And as a result, we read at the end of verse 20, look at that verse, don't miss the end of it. So therefore, he says, we are without excuse. Without excuse, no one will stand before God having refused and rejected him with any legitimate or justified excuse. Just not going to happen. We can deceive ourselves to believe that, but the truth of the matter is God has supplied adequate evidence in our conscience, in creation. He's given clear clues that indicate he speaks to human conscience. He addresses the issue. Psalm 19 said there is no language anywhere on this planet where God is not speaking in such ways that people would not hear. And it is not, again, that people cannot know the truth. As I said earlier, it's simply that we do what? We stifle the truth. We suppress it. God is showing it, but we suppress it and we resist it. And therefore, God being a just judge, evaluating the evidence says, you know what? Guilty. There are no victims of unfairness who stand before God after death and say, well, it wasn't fair. God's going to say, listen, it's not that it's not fair. It's not that I, I did not reveal myself. God's going to say, there is no excuse. God's going to say, you knew it and you fought it and you resisted it and you suppressed it, and you held it down, and you did everything you could, and you chose to reject the truth. And therefore, as a just God, I must now do what would only be just, which is to give you what you have chosen. You have chosen to reject me, and therefore, I won't force you to spend eternity with me. Listen, truth of the matter is, gang, God doesn't send people to hell. People choose hell. They choose hell against a God who lovingly, from the moment of their birth, is reaching out to them, reaching out to them, trying to reveal himself to them, doing everything he can to try and reach out to them in such a way where even, again, if you are that man on the remote island that nobody, what about that guy? Nobody's going to get the gospel. Look, God says, no, he has a conscience, though, and he has creation. And if he even just blindly reached out, I would reveal myself to him. So he says humanity is without excuse because we, however, don't not know the truth. We just suppress and hold it down so that we will all one day be without excuse should we stand before God having resisted him. Look at verse 21. He goes on saying because, and look at this phrase, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Notice, they knew God, 
but they did not glorify him as God. The idea, again, clear and adequate revelation, man's internal awareness, but yet man's conscious choice deliberately to reject and to resist, to ignore God's authority as God. They knew God existed. They knew it. But they said, but, but, and they just didn't glorify him as God. The idea is they wouldn't submit. They would not surrender. They would not give up the rights to the throne of their own heart where God ought to be reigning. Instead, they refuse to honor God and serve him. They know God, but they won't glorify him in submission and service as God. And in humanity's rebellion of God's existence and authority, we're going to see in our, in our text here, it leads then to the downward spiral of humanity morally and spiritually. We'll see that in the remainder of our chapter, but three things we see briefly in the remainder of our verses that are results of rejecting God, of resisting the truth that's testifying within us. He says, first of all, that it leads to worthless thinking. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, instead, they became futile in their thoughts. So one clear result, tragically, the downward spiral for humanity of rejecting God is it results, it leads to worthless thinking. To worthless thinking. He says here, because of rejecting God, people become futile in their thoughts. The word futile means empty or worthless. To be useless and without any purpose. What it's indicating here is a mind that does not acknowledge God in its thought processes, in its decision-making, is wasting its proper function and reason for existence. People will begin to, in essence, they'll begin to base their life on senseless reasoning. Their viewpoint is distorted. Their perspective is, is off. And, and they, they're empty, futile. They're empty of good judgment. They're not able to make good judgments about things because they're missing a fundamental piece of their existence so their viewpoint's distorted and what happens is you will lie to yourself. You've talked to people before, have you not? I've talked to plenty of people who literally... It's like you're lying to yourself. You have convinced yourself of this lie that you believe. But see, when you don't believe the truth, you embrace the lie. And, and it begins to cause worthless, senseless thinking... Secondly, we see another cause of rejecting and resisting God, and we see that in verse 21, the last part, he says, and they also become foolish in their hearts being darkened. He says their foolish hearts were darkened. So not only worthless thinking, but also leads to moral and spiritual insensitivity. Their hearts, the inner part of the being, their foolish hearts were darkened. The Bible says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And when a person says, and literally the Hebrew there is, the fool says in his heart, no God. That's the Hebrew. The fool says in his heart, no God. The idea is, no to God. No, there is no God. I don't want to acknowledge there is a God. And I'm saying no to God so that I can say yes to self. And the Bible says when that happens inside of a person, amidst that foolish refusal, the inner lamp of a man grows dimmer and dimmer and it becomes dark. And that inward lamp becomes darkened. The conscience becomes seared and hardened towards what's right and wrong. You become desensitized towards good and evil because you get used to like wearing a callus on a sensitive piece of skin where you don't feel it anymore. And every time you say no to God, please hear me, it will get easier and easier and easier 
to say no to God. And that is a scary thing. But that's a reality. But he says, the foolish heart begins dark and people begin to ignore what's morally and spiritually right. And you understand a world in which you just live in a sense in this dark inward way and you begin to do dark things and you even begin to desire dark things. Jesus said in John chapter 3, what happens is everyone practicing the evil hates the light and they don't come to the light because they don't want their deeds exposed. And it leads to this moral and spiritual insensitivity. And thirdly and finally, we see in our last verses that it also leads to what we could just call senseless idolatry and self-worship. Look what he says, professing to be wise. I don't need God. I'm too wise for that. I'm too smart for God. Professing to be wise, the Bible says they become fools. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible men, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. See, when a man does not worship God as he's intended to, here's the deal. They will worship something. We were created by design to worship. Everybody worships. I don't worship something. Yes, you do. Everybody worships something. It's the way we're created. The thing that is your master passion that you give the most devotion to, the most energy, time, and effort towards that matters the most to you, that you protect and cherish and make all your decisions in regards to keeping and continuing with, that's, that's what you worship. That's what you worship. It's the thing that dominates and controls your life. It's what you worship. And the tragedy is, it's quite amazing that when a person rejects the one true and living God in worship, it's almost quite insane what people will actually begin to worship. And this is what the Bible's indicating here. They had all these pagan deities in that day, animals. There, and it's amazing what people worship and become devoted to. And it's interesting how when a person rejects God, too, that ultimately it's not just senseless idolatry, but more than that, it also becomes self-worship because you notice that man ultimately then puts himself on the throne. You see what it says there in verse 22? They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. See, man always becomes the center of his own worship. It becomes self-worship whereby it, it's ordered around our desires, our drives, our preferences. We want to put ourselves on the throne. Why? Because if I'm God, then I can dictate and decide what's right and wrong for myself and for everybody else. And I can feel justified within because I'm the one who ultimately calls the shots and makes judgment. And the greatest sin of idolatry is self-worship. It's self-worship. For many, many people, the greatest thing that stands in the way between them and accepting Jesus Christ as Savior and following him as Lord, listen, it's themselves. It's themselves. Oh, I, I, I just... It's self that's why Jesus said, you know, if any man come to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said, if you want to find life, then you've got to lose your life so that you can find life, which is the life that God wants for you. It's self, and, and we struggle with that reality. You know, this morning, let me ask you a few questions as we close. First of all, are you suppressing God's truth in your life in any way regarding something that God has shown you? Well, I'm a Christian. So? I'm a Christian and at times I suppress God's truth because the spirit of truth lives inside of me and sometimes he says to me, you're the one that's a jerk 
And you should go say you're wrong and you're sorry. Lord, if I vomit on myself, that's going to be embarrassing. Right, but you'll feel better. We can suppress truth. As a Christian this morning, has God been speaking to you about some area in your life to cut something out, to repent of something, to make something right? Listen, stop suppressing the truth. If you're here this morning and the Spirit of God's been calling you to accept Jesus Christ, I beg you, stop repressing the truth. You stop repressing the truth. Give up. After a while, the indigestion is going to overwhelm you anyway. Stop suppressing the truth. Hey, this morning, are you here and have you been realizing my thinking capacity has kind of been a little distorted and I think I've kind of been driven more by my feelings and, 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 and that's leading me to almost kind of ignore my conscience and I'm starting to do some really dark things that I never thought that I would do. I find myself almost as if there's something else that rules my life and, and maybe if there's something else ruling your life and maybe if it's your own life and your own will and preference and desires, can I tell you, like we just saw in our last few verses here, that's an indication something's not right spiritually. And it's important to go before God and get that right before Him. And I would leave you with this final thought to contemplate. I'm really not surprised at all. Maybe I'm bizarre. I am not surprised at all that God's got wrath against humanity. The wrath of God does not surprise me an ounce. I, I can clearly see that we experience wrath towards other people, and we're totally unjustified. It doesn't surprise me that the wrath of God is real against every one of us. I'm surprised he's lovingly provided a way to avert his wrath, to avoid his wrath. And that's that he lovingly took that wrath that we deserve and diverted it away from us and let it fall upon his son Jesus Christ who died in our place and took all the wrath of God upon himself and allowed his son to be crushed and crucified and beaten and mocked. And God said, but I must pour out my wrath somewhere. I'm a just God, but I will pour it out on my own dear son because of my love for you so that you can avert that. And this morning, I would say to you, listen, please, you must understand this morning if you have never accepted God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ that the wrath of God abides upon you. It abides upon you. But the wonderful thing is there is a way to avert that. There's one way. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that Jesus is who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is who delivers us from the wrath to come. You must believe upon Jesus Christ. You must embrace Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I believe what you did for me. I believe who I am in Jesus. I ask in faith, save me. Jesus, I surrender to you. Save me from the wrath that I deserve. Take control of my life. And as you call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says you will be saved. But it's by the faith of a human heart exchanging it towards God in prayer.